you're listening to the You're Crazy Professor, But It Might Just Work amazing podcast. Episode 14. Why not try hypnotherapy? In this podcast, I want to ask if there is any scope for using clinical hypnosis in the modern working world as a way to help us all improve our lives, overcome any difficulties we may have, and to generally change our behaviours towards the more healthy and happy. Also, if there is evidence that hypnotherapy works, then why are we not using it more in primary care and in occupational medicine? If it works, and it's virtually free, with no expensive equipment or costs, with demonstrable efficacy in some clearly defined areas, then it begs the question why we are not using it more. In this age of mindfulness and mental health first aid, there has never been a better time to explore this form of psychological self-help. Here's a quote from the British Medical Journal on the 23rd of April, 1955. For the past 100 years, there's been an abundance of evidence that psychological and physiological changes could be produced by hypnotism, which were worthy of study on their own account, and also that such changes might be of great service in the treatment of patients. This is the case of a 16-year-old boy who presented for treatment in 1952 with what was thought to be an extreme case of acne vulgaris. A relatively junior medic at the time, Dr. A. A. Mason, was keen on using hypnosis with his patients. Over a few short courses of hypnosis, the skin of the patient, which had been severely affected by toughened and particularly spotty skin, had begun to clear up and respond well to the treatment. It was only after the treatment had begun, and when the dermis was showing signs of improvement, that Dr. Mason realised the patient did not actually suffer from severe acne, but had congenital ichthyosis, an incurable dermal condition. Somehow, the power of the hypnosis had improved the patient's symptoms. Dr. Mason and the patient focused their hypnosis on one limb at a time, and as the congenital ichthyosis symptoms began to improve limb by limb. This was followed up by the British Medical Journal in 1952 and again in 1955, and it's a clearly well-documented case. The power of the mind is clearly evident here, with Dr. Mason stating that he knew congenital ichthyosis was incurable, but that he was able to produce some level of cure in the patient because he himself did not know he was dealing with an incurable condition. He was just believing it to be severe acne. It seems that what the patient doesn't know is also as important as what the doctor doesn't know too. Hypnotherapy is commonly used to help people give up smoking or to change their dietary habits and lose weight. This is something that people can also use cognitive behavioural therapy for, but I've always maintained that not everybody is suitable for cognitive behavioural therapy approaches. CBT is basically thinking about thinking and realising that you can think differently about how you behave and that such behaviours can be changed, eliminated or improved. As I said, it's thinking about thinking, but to be honest, some of us struggle with just thinking on its own, never mind thinking about our thinking. My late dad, God bless him, 
would have no idea what to do if a CBT therapist sat in front of him and told him to evaluate his own thoughts and behaviours about his diet and the way he ate food. That kind of introspection and level of self-awareness is something that people like my dad, a working-class northern man born in the 1930s, would not feel comfortable with. Faced with a tempting, artery-busting fry-up in front of him, my dad would not be able to cognitively access a lexicon of strategies to avoid giving in to temptation, and he would chow down on the fry-up. But what if hypnosis could have given my dad that set of behavioural instructions to avoid unhealthy choices and behaviours without him really having to think about it or work at it? That is how clinical hypnosis could be viewed, like an autopilot for the mind that navigates us towards healthy behaviours and away from bad choices and bad habits. And to those of you thinking this is all going a little bit clockwork orange, don't worry, it isn't. Hypnosis doesn't take away the freedom of choice resulting in a man merely becoming an automaton. Hypnosis doesn't turn people into mindless zombies without a freedom of choice. Let me explain. Hypnotherapy is the ability to induce, either in another person or in the self, a relaxed and suggestible state, which leaves the person open to accepting and trying new attitudes and adopting new behaviours and way of thinking about things. It's a phenomenon that's been written about since the Victorian era. Despite a historical and continuous interest in the area of what hypnotism could achieve and the potential it has, which has captured the imagination of children and adults alike, it probably remains the one psychological practice that has the longest track record of being misunderstood by laypeople. Despite the logic behind it and the evidence associated with its efficacy in a variety of conditions that I'll cover in a wee while, it's too readily ignored by people. Unfortunately, having been hijacked by stage hypnotists, third-rate magicians, entertainers and end-of-peer illusionists, many people do not bother to explore the wide body of evidence that suggests hypnotherapy can be a useful tool in changing our behaviours. As a chartered psychologist who doesn't use hypnotherapy, I feel suitably independent of it and removed from it and can happily say I'm just a casual but curious observer. I've seen hypnotherapy done by other qualified psychologists, and I've even had some of my own students put under, for want of a better phrase, in lectures to demonstrate how it works. What is of interest to me is that modern healthcare could be missing out on using some really helpful tools in an effort to convert and influence people and communities towards safety and healthful behaviors. In the last decade, We've seen the workplace and healthcare and the safety industry become so much more psychology focused than ever before. So why don't we unlock the potential of people's minds in order to help the general improvement of healthfulness? In the early 1990s, mainstream healthcare still viewed the biomedical model as the dominant paradigm in the business of medicine. But before the end of the millennium, the acceptance of Engel and the biopsychosocial model finally became the norm. The net result of this is that many physicians, nurses, health advisors, human resource departments now routinely use the services of psychologists, counsellors, life coaches, 
psychotherapists and psychometricians to measure it all, as well as the growth of cognitive behavioural therapists. Ironically, the recent growth in neurolinguistic programming, or NLP, that enjoyed a recent boom, failed to acknowledge that NLP itself grew out of a form of hypnotherapy. In a world of healthcare that successfully adapted to the need to understand how to change people's behaviours, and one that is even willing to grasp the concepts of behavioural nudge theory to affect such changes, it's curious that such psychology, heavy practice, has neglected hypnotherapy. The answer is not just simply because hypnotherapy doesn't work, because that's not true, because much evidence says it does. In addition, evidence shows it works particularly well with the kinds of problems and complaints that often plague the modern general practice. Dietary issues, weight gain, substance use and misuse, exercise problems, smoking and drinking. Now, I need to warn you that the next minute or so will invoke Sigmund Freud. I know he's not very fashionable, and the mere mention of his name will make some of you stop listening to this podcast. Fair enough, I don't blame you. It's been fun. Goodbye. But to those of you who are still listening, one thing I can tell you is this, and I also tell it to all of my students as well. It's when you're young and angry, and perhaps you want to change the world, Freud often represents the enemy, and a dislike of his ideas is quite a natural thing to have. However, believe me, as you get older and you acquire more battle scars, the more car crashes you can see in the rearview mirror of your life's journey, so to speak, then Freud begins to make more sense. Freud is wasted on the kids. It might be no coincidence that one of the reasons why hypnotherapy never took off in mainstream healthcare and has since been confined to the alternative hippie crystal brigade and the downright diabolical homeopaths, is the unfashionable and much maligned Sigmund Freud. Freud and Joseph Brewer as well were both proponents of hypnosis when publishing studies in Hysteria in 1895. The pairing of hypnotherapy with the unfair postmodern criticism that Freud often receives may have consigned it to an early dustbin. In essence, Freud suggested use of hypnotherapy makes sense. When we have psychological or behavioural problems, they're often because of unresolved conflicts within us of which we're unaware. Our true thoughts and our desires can be so dark and savage and disturbing, according to Freud, that our subconscious buries them and these conflicts are hidden deep inside of us and we're not allowed to access them for our own good. And this is why we have things like defence mechanisms to protect us. The only way round such defence mechanisms as a way to try and access our true thoughts and fears and experiences, etc., is to sneak around the consciousness and to get in by the back door, so to speak, using word association, drugs, the analysis of dreams, or even subconscious notions of shape preference, all allowing us to get access to the true and guarded issues that may be at the core of ourselves and our problems. Another way of doing this in Freudian therapy was through the use of placing an individual into a light hypnotic state. Docile and suggestible, but still able to communicate and talk and to be cogent, but without the defence mechanisms becoming involved. Ironically, the psychosocial conditions that Freud and colleagues often encountered at the time, under the label of hysteria, map neatly onto modern-day complaints seen quite commonly in general practice. Heightened anxiety, depression, sleep problems, 
habituation of negative thinking and sometimes substance misuse. Okay, that's the Freud bit over with. Clinical hypnosis does not involve placing individuals into vulnerable positions of unconsciousness or zombie-like states. Some individuals may feel so relaxed and at ease that they actually fall into a brief sleep, but they're easily awoken by the therapist without any harm or danger to either of them. A hypnotic state can occur normally in most people when the right environment and psychological settings are provided, and with a skilled and experienced hypnotherapist, it's possible to use this state to make both profound and prolonged changes to the way people think about things, their feelings and emotional responses to other situations, and ultimately their behaviours and actions. Old ways of thinking and doing things can be challenged without any resistance. This is a summary of the form of hypnosis provided by practitioners within the British Society of Clinical Hypnosis. So what is the medical evidence? about hypnotherapy? Well, there have been many reviews of the scientific literature going back over 10 decades to try and establish if hypnosis have a useful, has a useful role to play in the management of common and rare conditions. Such reviews have usually been undertaken by independent review panels and they've often adopted very strict criteria in order to provide strong evidence should it be found about the usefulness of hypnotherapy. The British Medical Association commissioned a review back in 1892 to evaluate the effects of hypnotherapy. The review concluded that hypnotic states could genuinely exist and that hypnotherapy was frequently effective in remedying pain, sleep disorders, anxiety and functional disorders. A two-year review was again undertaken by the BMA, this time in 1955, entitled The Medical Use of Hypnotism and it concluded that hypnotism was of value and could be the treatment of choice in many psychosomatic conditions, intrusive thoughts and neuroses. Further uses were suggested for things such as analgesia in dental treatment and painful childbirth. These findings were repeated by a review by the American Medical Association uh, less than five years later and again by the US National Institute for Health in 1995 which expanded the list of conditions that could be aided by hypnosis to now include irritable bowel syndrome and other functional gastric problems, chronic pain associated with certain cancers, tension headaches and mandibular disorders. And a clinical review by Vickers and Zolman in 1999, I think, also found the side effects of chemotherapy, panic disorders, primary insomnia, phobias and asthma could be aided by hypnotherapy. They found no evidence to support some claims that hypnotherapy could extend life expectancy, and I can certainly um, vouch for that. However, subsequent Cochrane reviews did find no evidence to support claims that hypnotherapy can assist in smoking cessation or helping with irritable bowel syndrome. So there is a little bit of conflicting evidence, but generally it's found that hypnotherapy can work with most of the conditions that have been listed. In 2001, the British Psychological Society Working Party produced a report called The Nature of Hypnosis and concluded that, quote, hypnosis is a valid subject for scientific study and a proven therapeutic medium. And that's the BPS, and it wouldn't be wise to disagree with them. The report strongly concluded that, quote, enough studies have now accumulated to suggest that the inclusion of hypnotic procedures 
may be beneficial in the management and treatment of a wide range of conditions and problems encountered in the practice of medicine, psychiatry and psychotherapy. Areas of success for hypnotherapy included acute and chronic pain management, distress reduction in dental patients, childbirth, adjunct therapy and weight loss programs, dealing with common anxiety, tension and stress, insomnia and sleep disorders, and a range of psychosomatic conditions such as headaches, chronic pain, asthma, gastrointestinal problems, and some skin conditions. This takes us right back to the congenital ichthyosis back in 1952. See, all of this stuff is linked. We don't just throw it together here on the podcast. Here's a good example of how hypnotherapy was helpful to a young female patient called Esther. Esther was a 27-year-old administrative worker within a large insurance company. She was occasionally required to travel to other locations as part of her job and would drive on these assignments. Esther had somehow developed difficulties in her early 20s concerning phobias and worries when she was near large man-made structures such as bridges, towers or pylons. She would feel terrified just at the thought of driving towards or being near such structures in the landscape. This was becoming a problem at work as Esther would sometimes have to take long detours on her journeys at work to avoid such structures and features. She was also struggling to concentrate when behind the wheel because she was constantly hypervigilant and on the lookout for large structures to emerge in the geography, particularly if she was driving in an unfamiliar area. On one occasion, Esther even reversed her vehicle back along the hard shoulder of a motorway onto a slip road so she could get off the motorway rather than drive towards a tower that she could see looming in the near distance. There were clear safety implications uh, for her and obviously she was breaking the law as well. The company she worked for had an employee assistance program and they were able to provide Esther with access to a clinical hypnotherapist once a week over four weeks. The therapist was able to teach Esther self-relaxation techniques that she could practice as homework between hypnotherapy sessions and after assessing her in the first session and establishing her thoughts about such structures the therapist was confident that a hypnotherapeutic approach would be suitable. In the second session, Esther was induced into a deeply relaxed state whereby the therapist was able to help her ascribe silly names and stupid characteristics to certain well-known towers and landmarks from around the world, the Eiffel Tower, Leading Tower of Pizza, and even the Golden Gate Bridge. This allowed her to laugh at buildings and structures and to find amusement in them. And of course, this prohibited her from feeling scared or fearful at the same time. You can't be happy and sad at the same time. In the third session with the therapist, Esther was induced into the relaxed state again for the second time, and then again ascribed comedy characteristics, but this time to bridges and towers and features that she would commonly encounter in her own local geography. She was taught to view large structures this way and that would help push any fears from her mind by replacing them with sort of absurdity and humour. The fourth and final session was a refresher session where the therapist checked that such new ways of thinking and such cognitions and behaviours were working well for Esther and indeed they were. And after four sessions she was discharged 
and didn't come back again with any other problem. Like other services that are outsourced in the provision of health and well-being, it's vital to ensure that the practitioners who are engaged operate within professional frameworks. The British Society of Clinical Hypnosis, the BSCH, aims to ensure that clients receive the best possible treatment from therapists using contemporary evidence-based techniques in modern hypnotherapy while ensuring the professional standards of such members are adhered. In addition to the BSCH, a professional body that reserves full membership only for qualified doctors and dentists who also hold additional qualifications in hypnotherapy is the British Association of Medical Hypnosis, the BAMH. In addition to running a peer-reviewed journal for disseminating research, the European Journal of Clinical Hypnosis, some of the aims of the BAMH are to promote hypnotherapy and allied sciences within the field of medicine, to maintain the integrity and interests of the profession, and to identify and promote appropriate standards for the practice of hypnotherapy and the supervision of their members. Okay, that's the professional bit out of the way. Hypnotherapy has been scrutinised by medical and healthcare experts for decades and seems to show that improvements in some conditions are more likely than not, and they're usually higher than the effects that you'd find from a placebo. The level of scrutiny and review has justifiably been very high and tight, which has resulted in very positive reviews about the efficacy of this clinical hypnotherapeutic approach. In recent years, the quality of research involving hypnotherapy has been even higher, often using nothing less than randomised trials and very strong quantifiable outcome measures, and this has not resulted in increased publications stating that hypnotherapy should not be used. In fact, it's been quite the opposite. In high-profile journals such as The Lancet and the Journal of American Medical Association, the JAMA, two more factors suggest that the use of hypnotherapy is suitable. First, the range of conditions that have been shown improvement when subjected to hypnotherapy is very broad and particularly seems to improve modern, non-specific, multiform, somatic um, conditions that have a psychological component. Second, the biopsychosocial pathway evident in the relationship between unhappiness, distress, personality coping style and subsequent ill health can clearly be accessed in hypnotherapy. Hypnotherapy can deal with the emotional side, which can be the root cause of the problems we see developing. In my studies into hypnosis, I found that the biggest single predictive factor of whether hypnosis will work or not for a patient is if that patient goes into the process with, wait for it, an open mind. My view is that hypnosis can work very well in about two-thirds of cases, which is well above the placebo level, but it is less likely to work in patients who believe that it won't. That's the power of positive thinking and action. That's what we saw with Dr. A. A. Mason back in 1952. If it's something you think you might consider for help with any problem or concern you have. You can find many suitably qualified practitioners online and many may be affiliated to the GP surgeries or primary care systems where you are. Look up the British Society of Clinical Hypnosis online and you can take it from there. So with hypnosis, as with all things in life, it does really help if you try to keep an open mind. You've been listening to the You're Crazy Professor, But It Might Just Work amazing podcast. I hope it's been useful. I hope it's been helpful.